Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by my Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Anne-Marie and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about Facebook and its new name, Chegg and Under Armour's recent earning reports, and Zillow's complete exit from the home buying business. So Rory, welcome back to the Stock Club podcast. It's been a while. How are your holidays? Do you find uh, any uh, interesting new companies out in the Algarve? I didn't, I didn't find too many interesting companies in the Algarve. I did manage to rip the side off my father's brand new car uh, in Seville. Oh, I'd say he loved that. He loved it. Yeah, it's Seville, by the way, lovely town, not good for driving around in big cars. (laughs) I love, by the way, that we have become so good at remote work that even though all of us were in the office today, we've had to go home in order to record this podcast. (laughs) I can only operate remotely now. I I don't like being too close to you guys. The thoughts of being in a studio with you guys just terrifies me. (laughs) I'm literally standing in the soundproof studio at the top of our building alone, talking to you through Zoom when... (laughs) Not half an hour ago, we were sitting opposite each other. <laughs> Such is the way of the modern workplace, Rory. Well, yeah. you've been gone so long that one of the biggest companies in the world actually changed its name. So last week, Facebook changed its name to Meta. Uh, similar to Google's rebranding back in 2015, Meta will now become the name of the parent company, overseeing products like the Facebook app, Instagram, Messenger, WhatsApp, Oculus, and, and whatever else Mark Zuckerberg has going on there. The company will also now change its ticker symbol to MVRS from December 1st and has ditched the famous Blue Tongue logo in favor of a new symbol that I think kind of looks like an infinity sign, a blue infinity Facebook sign. When he was announcing these changes last week, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said that the company's current name could not possibly represent everything that the company is doing today, let alone in the future. And he also hoped that the company, Facebook, now known as Meta, will come to be seen as the metaverse company in the future. And Marie, a few episodes ago, we spoke about this rebranding, in particular about Facebook's wider metaverse plans. We won't go over the idea of what a metaverse is again, but what was your take on how this was eventually rolled out by the company? I read an interesting article to prep for this, and it was in the Harvard Business Review, and it was called Facebook's Rebrand Has a Fundamental Problem by Denise Lee Yon. Can I just stop you there for one second, Rory? Did you hear that? She actually done some prep for this uh, podcast. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Sorry, Um, Emery, continue. No, it's all right. Um, Basically, her fundamental thesis was the most critical issue with Facebook's rebranding is that the new brand has been introduced without any substantive changes to the company. And I would kind of agree with her. I mean, I think the main comparison that we see is when Google changed its name to Alphabet and people are now saying, oh, this is exactly the same. Facebook has a lot of assets. It wants a more kind of generic name to better encompass them all together. But like Meta is not that name. Like Meta references the metaverse, which is the goal or the vision now of what used to be Facebook. 
but it's like it's still just a vision. They actually don't make products currently for the metaverse. And, and Zuckerberg himself has admitted that we could be 10 years away from the actual proper launch of the metaverse. And I think that's really interesting. And to me, that makes me think that this was kind of rushed out a bit. I think that they might have panicked with all the articles that came out in the Wall Street Journal. And I wonder if they move up their timeline for renaming themselves. Because it is somewhat similar to the Google thing in that when they created the name Alphabet, it meant that Google and its products like Google Maps and Google Drive didn't necessarily then have to be impacted when Waymo, which is the driverless car company that Google owns, when like that had some sort of disaster or that technology um, proved proved not to work or something like that. It didn't now have to reflect poorly on the brand Google. It could reflect upon Alphabet, their larger conglomerate company. Yeah. And so I wonder... Did Facebook think, okay, if we move this up, then people will criticize, you know, Facebook the product and we'll just kind of leave the other products alone. But in terms of like the logic behind the name, I don't really like it. I don't really think it makes sense. And kind of something that it made me think was because the name Meta completely ignores Facebook's existing revenue driving assets and kind of the actual business that they currently run, it makes me think that they're acknowledging the futility of their current products. And this idea that they're, as a company, moving into a completely new direction that will seemingly leave behind everything that it currently runs and makes money from. Um, So I don't really think it was that smart of a move right now. I don't really think it has much a lot behind it and i think it might confuse investors a little bit yeah absolutely well i read a story about the shares in a company i think it was a, a nova scotia based material science company called meta Materials, spiking about 20 percent. so it definitely confused some people <laughs> um, but you, you mentioned there about the the move google into alphabet made in 2015 and, and when you were describing that there it, it it's it struck me as a move by Google to give its separate businesses room to breathe by themselves and, and shoot off in different directions. That doesn't seem to me like the case with Facebook, where it seems like its products are kind of coming together, particularly the Facebook product and Oculus are, are coming more together and, and merging in the future. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think when Google made the decision to create Alphabet, I think it was to help investors better acknowledge the fact that they had a huge segment of companies and products under them that were like entirely experimental and so i think it in which they call their other bets segment and it it has a lot of crazy stuff like they do anti-aging research they do healthcare stuff they do driverless cars and it's all encompassed within the other bets category and by creating alphabet it just allowed investors to better understand hey when you buy the google stock you're buying the search engine but you're also buying all of these futuristic technologies that might pay out and end up being really important 10 or 20 years down the line. And that's, you know, helpful. That is a good change to make. And in terms of Facebook, yeah, it does seem to be a, a condensing rather than an acknowledgement of a of a broader scope for the business. Yeah. Well, Rory, to come over to you then, you know, Facebook has been was one of the first companies I think we ever added to my Wall Street. We've been covering for quite a few years. What's your take on on this next step in its evolution as one of the most influential companies in the world? Do you think Facebook is the company best poised to pioneer metaverse as a concept as Zuckerberg wants? It's, it kind of reminds me of that quote, which is like, they spent all the time thinking whether they could and never considered whether they should. Um, <laughs> is, that, uh, is that Jurassic Park? I, maybe it is Jurassic Park. I actually yeah. can't remember where that comes from. But uh, <laughs> like, let's think about Facebook and where it was, right, or where where it started. Facebook originally was really about 
augmenting relationships that existed in the real world. Okay, so, you know, when I started using Facebook, I was fresh-faced college uh, age. You know, the, there was people I was meeting on a regular basis that I'd never met before. And the way you kind of associated with your, that, that person with yourself was by following them on Facebook or you don't follow people on Facebook. What do you do? You, you friend them on Facebook. You you're really, them. you're really exposing your age here, Rory. <laughs> I mean, like, I'll be honest with you, I haven't used the blue app as they call it in 10 years now. Um, but it, it was all about augmenting offline relationships and you spent your time on Facebook kind of connecting with people that you actually knew in the real world. And it was, you know, there was that great scene in the social network where he realizes that relationship status was going to be a major factor in growing this. And I think like anyone who grew up with Facebook when they're going to college, that that was a huge part of it. it was are are you Facebook like, official? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you Facebook official? Reminds me of the dad time my dad moved his and my mom's relationships to its complicated. <laughs> <laughs> for a joke but now now Facebook exists as a place you know when they moved into this timeline idea you know at the time it, it seemed like a big change and, and really we're seeing now how big a change it actually was because now Facebook exists as this place where communities that exist only in the digital world can grow um, and that sounds great but it has as we know caused a huge amount of problems we've seen that through the Facebook files we've seen it with what happened in terms of the US election what's happened in terms of coronavirus all this stuff, because when only digital relationships exist, there is no real kind of social construct in terms of, well, you shouldn't behave that way. You can behave yeah. whatever way you want. And, you know, this is this is driven engagement. It's driven advertising dollars. Meta is like a fulfillment of that, right? Where literally the real world, if we want to call it that, the, the actual world, doesn't exist anymore. You don't need it to exist. There's another world. There's a completely online world where you exist and you're not really answerable to anyone except your peers within that group. And Meta is really, I think, about Zuckerberg want needing, not wanting, needing to own a whole platform. Yeah. And we can see exactly what that is, what's, what the, what's driving that. We look at the trouble the company is having with Apple right now and how you know, exposed they are, essentially. I think, you know, Amory made a good point that like the, the business, the, the family of apps, the ones that we think about, the WhatsApps, the Instagrams, the Facebooks, they're all at this, you know, they're all within firing line of a company like Apple who can control so much of what happens with them. And Zuckerberg really wants to own his own platform. And in a way, in, in a way, it's Facebook is the absolute worst company to do this. In another way, they're, they're actually the only company that can do this. When you think about the money they're going to throw into this $10 billion over the next year, increasing, I would imagine, exponentially in the years ahead. And it's only because... Zuckerberg is kind of the last founder, really. He's the guy, he's the only guy that people would really trust to kind of do this. There's those people on FinTwit, the houses of people who just, you know, fully back this guy. But it sounds like a bit of a dystopian nightmare to me, quite honest yeah. with you. Well, you mentioned there that, that Facebook might be the only company that are able to do this, and certainly in terms of, you know, spending power and reach and influence at the moment. But is there an argument to be made that Facebook are too big to, to be to be a disruptor of the next phase of the Internet? So I think Metaverse kind of falls under the, these new this new kind of reams of applications like that, that kind of fall under the Web3 or, or the new evolution of the Internet. And Facebook was definitely one of the disruptors of, of the social element of the Internet or Internet 2. But... 
kind of big behemoth of a company like this with a brand problem and, and many other problems to boot, can they really be another disruptor? You know, we know business goes in cycles. The biggest 10 businesses of this time 10 years ago are no longer relevant, maybe in any cases anymore. Is this Facebook's last chance at remaining relevant for the next decade? I mean, I think, look, you, Facebook still is a fantastic business. Let's not let's not beat around the bush here. They still generate incredible revenue every year, uh, incredible margins. The Apple problems obviously are there. We haven't really seen what the long-term outcome of that is going to be. But in terms of Facebook being too big to be a disruptor anymore, I think it's disrupted so much already. It's disrupting everything on a constant basis. And we see even how Apple has disrupted Facebook. Things, you know, you don't have, yeah. just because you're big doesn't mean you can't be really disruptive. And Facebook is certainly, they're certainly aiming in a direction that I think things were going anyway. You know, we look at things like video games, for example, Twitter, the, that decentralization, and Roblox even, which is a very interesting company that I've been keeping quite a close eye on. This is all kind of building towards this, and Facebook sees itself, I think, as the kind of, you know, one ring to rule them all, essentially. <laughs> you know, it's not, it, this isn't going to exist simply in Facebook or Meta or whatever we're calling it right now. But Facebook wants to be the kind of overseer, the kind of dark lord of the metaverse. And, <laughs> um, you know, they have a good track record at that kind of stuff. So, so if Facebook is the ring, what does that make Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, Gollum. <laughs> Let's move on then. Um, so obviously Facebook is the big news of the moment, but we're also up to our neck in earnings season here at the minute. This time around, the news has been dominated by a few broad themes. There's difficult comps on the year previous. There's supply chain constraints. There's the effects of iOS 14, which we spoke about at length last week. There's wider fears about inflation. This has all led to quite a few surprises in the earnings reports we're seeing this quarter, with some companies doing exceptionally well, while some other companies are cratering on unexpected news. Rory, I'm going to come to you first on this. Just broadly, are there any companies out there that have really surprised you in recent weeks with their earnings call, either good or bad? I mean, there's one company that stands out quite obviously, and that's Chegg. Chegg is a business I've loved for a long time. It's one of those businesses where it's got visionary founder doing something unique out there. People love it. It actually, it, it solves a huge problem. And this was an earnings season where I think, you know, we were bound to see some big volatility. We talked about that before I went on holidays, you know, when we were doing a kind of earnings preview. You know, we think about world events and their impact. I like to try and imagine how we're going to think about them in 10 to 20 years. You know, is, is this event going to be a sentence in a book? Is it going to be a chapter in a book? Or yeah. is it going to be the book itself? And COVID <laughs> is going to be the last one and more so. It, there's going to be whole books dedicated just to the actual pandemic, not just the actual pandemic, but to, the, to how it impacted the very fabric of our society. Um, and when you transplant that onto something like the stock market, which provides almost immediate feedback loops, you get this extraordinary volatility. Now, let's not beat around the bush here. Chegg's results were an absolute car crash in slow motion. The current quarter, things weren't terrible, but this is supposed to be a growth company and revenue growth of 11% year over year does not a growth stock make. Uh, moreover, the guidance was just absolutely shocking. Revenue is now guided for between 194 and 196 million. That's almost 56 million lower than its expectations uh, wow. from Wall Street. A long time since I've seen a company misguidance by more than 20%. Now, if we read into what management had to say about what's driving that, I'll, I'll read out a quote. A combination of variants, increased employment opportunities and compensation, along with fatigue, have led to significantly fewer enrollments than expected this semester. And those students who have enrolled are taking fewer and less rigorous classes and are receiving less graded assignments. 
Okay, so in that, we're not talking about Chegg as a business anymore. We're talking about the entire system of higher education in the United States and a potential sea change in the way that we people perceive and engage with universities. And, you know, this is an industry that has been ripe for disruption for years. You know, if you want to see an industry that's, that's uh, primed to be disrupted, you look at those that have seen rapid price increases without notable increase in the value of the products or services being offered. And if you do look at that, you will see healthcare, pharmacy drugs, and higher education at the very top of that list. But where is this disruption coming from, I think, is the, is the question. You know, when we think about disruption, we often think of upstarts. We often think of like new companies coming in, offering a new kind of way, you know, innovating, offering a new service or product. In this case, it doesn't seem like it's a particular company. It's a kind of change in thinking. And Chegg could kind of be a canary in the coal mine here. You know, keep in mind, internationally, the company did quite well. So what does that say about higher education in the in, in the US market? What does it say about a younger generation, uh, how they view degrees, how they view college courses? What does the job market now think of degrees? You know, we've seen companies like Google, for example, work with Coursera to create kind of new paths for employment where, you know, you're not talking about someone going in, spending $100,000, being in debt for the next 20 years in order to get a piece of paper that says, you're good at coding. And, you know, this could be something that we've been kind of thinking was going to happen for a long time. And it just might be happening now. Now, in terms of the stock, I think, you know, it had a very good 2020. I think it's probably at a reasonable price right now. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it was it was pretty much cut in half. Pretty much cut in half. And it's been, it's been on a little bit of a downtrend before that. Management said they're going to throw, I think, a billion dollars into stock buybacks. That's about 15% of the outstanding shares. So, it could be quite a good investment at the moment. It's easy to say that after a stock drops 50%, but here we are. <laughs> Absolutely. What about you, Anne-Marie? Anything sticking out for you? Any companies that have surprised you? Yeah, I have two. One kind of a bigger one and then one that's, I guess, like our, our comeback kid. Um, but I'm going to start off with Etsy, yep. um, which reported yesterday, and it beat expectations for both earnings per share and revenue. Revenue was up 17.9% versus a year prior, which is pretty good considering Etsy had a pretty significant pull forward thanks to the pandemic. But the stock dropped a little bit because they adjusted their full year guidance and it was just under kind of what people were expecting, but really just under like by about $2 million. Um <laughs> And pocket um, change, pocket change. (laughs) Yeah. But then subsequently today, the stock is up about 15%. And I this big jump would appear to be a kind of sentiment that um, Etsy and its CEO discussed quite significantly on their most recent earnings call. This quarter for the company really was them attempting to prove that they're not a pandemic player and that they're not simply a mask seller. They're trying to prove that this is a sustainable trend, that they have organic growth, and that people will be interested in buying products from them even after you can go back into stores and have a look around at stuff yourself. And so over the course of the quarter, Etsy began to reduce its performance marketing spend just to basically see how things would go and see if growth kind of continued or what would happen. And to quote CEO Josh Silverman, he said, quote, we expected headwinds and some deceleration, but it's been delightful to see that certainly relative to 2019, that hasn't been the case. In fact, we've seen a lot of stability. And they have seen a lot of stability. For example, average basket size has grown year over year. Active sellers are up 102% year over year. And active buyers are up 37.8%, which are all tremendous signs of growth. And to me, 
that shows that like Etsy has established itself as a brand that people are interested in and trust and will go to to buy stuff. And it's been interesting to see the vast majority of their revenue begin to start coming from home goods and decorations and, and stuff like that. And so going into the holidays, I think this is a great indicator for the stock and a great indicator for investors because something that they talked about on the call and something that made them such a successful pandemic player was that they have a highly distributed supply chain because Etsy is a collection of artists and you know tiny businesses that are selling directly to consumers via the platform. And that means that like you could be buying Christmas gifts that are coming from all over the world, that are coming from you know someone's tiny workshop. You're not relying upon a massive ship to carry in millions of goods that are all coming across the Pacific Ocean. And so this could mean that Etsy is going to have another kind of contextual advantage heading into the Christmas season with all the supply chain issues with traditional retailers. And so I think investors got really excited about that. And that's why we got a bit of a stock pop. The second stock to experience a nice little reward this quarter was Under Armour, which is kind of a stock near and dear to my heart, simply because it's been really kind of fun and interesting to watch them rebuild themselves over the last couple quarters. So Q3 of 2021, revenue growth returned better than expected when they saw sales rise 8% year over year. Crucially, when we compare it to pre-pandemic 2019, their revenue is up about 3% for the whole year, which means the company is on track to beat its full year projections. And it also believes that it will have quite a successful Q4. Yeah. So that's great to see. More importantly, I think, is the the way that the revenue looks is much, much, much healthier than it has been in the past. And what I mean by that was Under Armour had a tremendous issue with maintaining its brand and maintaining its premium positioning when it didn't have a direct-to-consumer model. It basically meant that the vast majority of their product is moving through discount retailers. And when you can't control your pricing, it means that you can't control how your brand will be perceived or who's going to be buying it or anything, which is disastrous when you're a sports company that really wants to be seen as being a performance brand and being worn by professional athletes and being necessary for you to compete at the highest level. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Under Armour is, is one of those companies that has been like classically trashed by teenagers and kind of it's really, really unpopular with them. And when you consider it besides something like Nike and, and specifically its Air Jordan line, it, it's it's very hard thing to compete with. Yeah. And so it's been nice to see them expand out where their revenue is coming from. Their direct-to-consumer sales rose 12% year over year this quarter with a 21% increase in sales within Under Armour-owned and operated retailer stores. Lululemon is such a testament to what can happen for a brand when they control their own retail space and how it allows them to constantly reinvent themselves and ensure that they're always being presented in the best way to consumers. I think if Under Armour is is having success rebuilding their stores, that speaks volumes to their ability to control themselves moving forward. And a lot And according to their CEO, a much smaller percentage of sales were off price or third party. There's a lot less promotions and discounting. And this is good for their brand moving forward. How much of this turnaround would you attribute to new CEO Patrick Frisk? He was kind of brought in a few years ago to really turn around the brand when it was kind of at at rock bottom. Yeah, I think the company made a lot of hard decisions in order to pursue this premium branding. And I think it would be kind of down to him. Like it was a bold decision to say, we're going to pull all of our clothing out of 3000 retail outlets when they didn't really have anywhere else to sell it. Like that's a huge gamble and it was successful. And they also sold off my fitness pal for quite a significant loss. It meant that for several quarters, they were really going through some pain and some pretty significant restructuring, but it may be starting to pay off. That being said, we actually haven't seen like new surveying in terms of like how Under Armour is perceived by young people. I think that's a really important metric 
rhetoric for a company like Under Armour who has to compete with Adidas and Nike. Um, but it was funny because I had a conversation about that with Mike yesterday. And then we went out for lunch and when we came out of our office, I saw like a 15 year old kid wearing a Steph Curry Under Armour backpack. And I was like, oh, and that is maybe- a rare sight in Dublin City. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, maybe things are turning around. <laughs> And so you decided to to pitch it on this podcast. So let's move on then and talk about some of the other things going on in My Wall Street at the moment. We added a brand new Stock of the Month report to the My Wall Street app this week. And Marie, that was another first edition for you. Can you give us a quick pitch on the stock without naming it? Yeah. So I guess my <laughs> argument for this stock was that it now has taken on... Don't premium. name it, Amory. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, I think my pitch for this stock was that it now has premium branding, and I don't think it gets enough credit for that. And I, that was my argument for why it should be stock of the month. Okay. Wish.com. <laughs> it's definitely not wish. Um, so with a new, another new stock of the month uh, report, that means we have another exclusive stock of the month podcast coming in the next few days. In this, you can listen to Anne-Marie and I discuss the latest stock of the month pick in more depth and answer any questions you might have had about it. You can only find this in the My Wall Street app. So go to mywallstreet.com and start your free trial if you want to check that podcast out. We also have something else new for you. The very first course in the My Wall Street Academy called the fundamentals of stock picking in this two-week course starting on november 17th my wall street co-founder and chief investor emmett savage who you might know from this podcast will mentor you on the investing strategy that he's fine-tuned over the past two decades he'll show you the most crucial parts of his stock picking strategy including the tools and resources he uses to find great stock ideas how he screens stocks in five minutes to see if they have potential and the 10 single points of data he uses to drill into company before making a decision on whether to buy or not plus there'll also be an opportunity in this course for you to submit your own stock pitch to Emmett and get feedback on it in a live session the first course starts in less than two weeks time as I already mentioned and it's capped at 50 attendees so if you're interested follow the link in the notes for today's show to get more information right guys let's move on to mailbag so in the last episode of stock club we spoke about Zillow's decision to pause all home buying which is a pretty massive thing for the company to you know they announced that they were going to stop buying houses for the rest of the year well in in the meantime We've learned that the company is actually scrapping its home buying business altogether, citing difficulties in accurately predicting house prices as the reason. Rory, Zillow has been on my Wall Street stock pick since 2015, and we've spoken a lot over the years about its home buying efforts and the apparent success it had with it. How big of a blow is this recent news, and does it change our thesis on Zillow as an investment? Um, it completely changes our thesis. Yeah, it is very. It is rare in the world of you know public companies. Uh, that you completely pivot from your original business model to a completely different one. And even rarer that three and a half years later, you completely re-pivot back to your original business model. Um, <laughs> as you said, uh, Zillow two weeks ago said they were going to put the, the kibosh, as it were, on buying new homes. Um, they purchased 3,800 homes in the second quarter of 2021, but basically said, you know, labor shortages were making, they couldn't get renovations done quick enough, um, which seems to be a perfectly reasonable issue. We've seen that in this country as well. We just can't find builders at the moment. There's a real demand supply imbalance there. Um, now they said that they're going to discontinue iBuying altogether. It's, uh, I quote, it's algorithmic plus model to buy and sell homes rapidly doesn't work as planned. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a that's red a, flag. <laughs> that's an expensive mistake. It cost about $380 million in the last quarter. Uh, Chief Executive Richard Barton said Zillow had failed to predict the pace of home price appreciation accurately, making an end to a venture the company once said could generate $20 billion a year. 
And now says it plans to cut that iBuying program entirely, as well as 25% of its workforce. This is really like Zillow is probably one of the most interesting businesses in the world right now in terms of what's going on with it. Yeah. You know, they released their earnings on Tuesday and basically said the home flipping business had lost, as I said, $380 million in the last quarter. They have an inventory of about 9,800 homes across the United States that's currently shopping for investors. And there's another 8,200 of them that they've contractually agreed to buy. They were losing somewhere between 5% and 7% on each of these purchases. Really interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal in which they talked to a real estate tech researcher called Mike Delpreet, uh, who's a scholar in residence at University of Colorado. He basically mapped out that they were buying homes $65,000 above the median average. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in Phoenix, which was kind of the, I suppose, kind of almost the birthplace of iBuying, um, they had 250 homes in that market discounted by 6.2% below what they paid for them. Uh, what's, what's quite interesting about this is that Zillow kind of, whenever they talked about this, they wanted, this was kind of a, kind of, I suppose, like fever dream of the founder, Rich Barton, who came back and kind of took over the company again and yeah. um, got rid of Spencer Raskoff. And they really wanted to kind of make Zillow like a market maker, right? It wasn't really, like they weren't really out there. When people say like home flipping, you know, they wanted to make quick bucks on, on houses. That really wasn't the, the idea. The idea was to kind of make either 2% profit or minus 2% profit on or two percent loss as it's also known uh, on every home that 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 they were they were selling in order to kind of become almost like a stock market of homes but of course mike levine wrote a very good piece about this where he said you know homes don't behave like stocks homes are a bit trickier than stocks they have individual problems as he said there might be you know radon in the basement that's you know that's that's a problem that you have to kind of sort out you can't just kind of buy them in the morning and sell them in the in the evening and what they seem to have kind of not figured out was that their whole business was supposed to be as like an as an aggregator was there to kind of help people find homes and what this was kind of doing was they were kind of like hurting their own agency business essentially yeah in order to become this kind of market maker that just wasn't working out there was too many flips it was too big a spread in what they were finding and so you know there was a few quarters ago where they made loads of money on it because the houses were going up in value this time the houses were going down in value and they hadn't acted fast enough to clear that inventory so what does this say i suppose about eye buying in general yeah because there's, there's a lot of eye buying companies out there there's redfin there's open door should alarm bells be ringing for investors in those companies too i know open door released a pretty lengthy statement saying that they were confident in their business and they've a lot more experience and a lot more inventory but you know is it is, is, does this kind of undermine the thesis of this sector in general it's it's still i think way too early to tell and we like even whenever we talked about zillow we always talked about eye buying as being this novel idea that hadn't been proven you know, it's a novel business model. It has been tried and tested in various market environments. As you can see, Zillow's version of iBuying simply didn't work. But then, you know, we think about aggregators and how they behave. And in a way, it seemed like Zillow should have been a massive winner here, right? Um, firstly, Zillow was the biggest name in the market. Like hundreds of millions of people use that website every month. It is probably the place that most home buyers and sellers, for that matter, start this journey in terms of buying or selling a home. 
In yeah. that sense, they should have had a huge opportunity. They were they owned the customer relationship. They had much lower cost of acquisition than competitors. They weren't going out saying to people, come to our website to buy a home. People were coming there already uh, using Zestimates every day to figure out what house prices were. And you would think, having been doing this for years and years, they would have the best data that anyone could possibly have. They should have had a huge edge in this. But of course, this boils down to what, what, what eventually happened. Rich Barton was like, look, this business isn't working for us. We have another business that we need to protect. Open Door, which only does this, doesn't have that option. They have mm. to get this right. There is no other way this business of Open Door survives. And Open Door was built from the ground up as a site to buy and sell homes. So they have been doing this for a long time. It's what their their core competency is. You would, I can't believe, it's, it's hard to believe that Zillow didn't, with all their resources and all their data, have the opportunity to come in and do it as well. Um, but at, at the same time, Open Door and Offerpads, for example, are both companies that you know when you buy into them, you know what you're buying into. I suppose it's like you know this is this is what we do, and so investors have that sense. Whereas Zillow was kind of uh, it, it doubled down on it in a way, but then it just you know it just abandoned it. It was just gone. <laughs> so so there is that kind of crazy volatility now. And in a way, I do have to give Rich Barton some credit because when things aren't working you need to point it out and be honest about it. He did a full mea culpa and said, you know, and it was his baby. He had been pushing this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lesson there, <laughs> uh, I suppose. <laughs> an expensive anytime, lesson. It's an expensive lesson. So anytime, you know, it goes back to, you know, the Google Etsy story. It goes back to um, the Microsoft Slack story. Just because you're a massive business with, with all the opportunity there, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to do something quite that simple it's not as easy as it sounds no absolutely it's definitely a, a crazy story so let's move on then and finish out today's show with the elevator pitch so i won't subject listeners to another halloween themed stock pitch um as we did last week rory i don't know if you listened into that but it was uh got some pretty uh interesting companies pitched to me let's go to classic today i just want you guys to pitch me a stock you're doing a bit of research on at the moment Anne marie what company are you looking at at the minute I'm in the early stages of looking at Nerd Wallet, which okay. is a company that is about to IPO, I believe, this month. Um, they're a really interesting company, kind of on a qualitative side. They're very, very mission driven. Basically, they were founded by their current CEO, Tim Chen, who was attempting to help his sister compare a bunch of credit cards and pick out which was best for her. And he found that there wasn't a website doing that. It took him a bunch of time to go onto every bank's website and read all the terms and conditions and make a big chart so that his sister could compare credit cards. And so he decided, right, I'm going to make a website to do this. And then he figured out that he could create financial resources for a whole bunch of things like investing and insurance and mortgages and student loans. And so it's basically a website that people go on to when they need help figuring out their own financials, which is really interesting. They're in a nice little period of growth right now. Their revenue grew 32% year over year in the first half of 2021. And they have 21 million monthly active users up from 16 million in 2020. Um, that being said, I have read up that they have a they're spending a tremendous amount of money on marketing to bring in new users. So I want to check in on stuff like that. Um, but it's a very kind of nice and wholesome business that's really dedicated to um, helping people and is not too dissimilar actually from my Wall Street. So that was nice to see. Nice. I like that one. Uh, Rory. Any companies you're looking at? Yeah, I'm taking... Any any I'm... car repair companies? <laughs> uh, um, I am taking a look, once again, at a company called Coupang. 
um, which to be as reductive as possible is the Amazon of South Korea, uh, a company that IPO'd earlier this year to kind of an awful lot of hype and aplomb, but has seen the stock essentially kind of cut in half over six months with not a huge amount of kind of reason behind it rather than just, you know, the, the kind of shine has come off in terms of the CEO step down. There seems to be an awful lot of Squid Game-esque anger towards the business right now following a warehouse fire that happened back in June, which coincided actually with the day that the CEO stepped in, which didn't look good, even though it, it had been pre-planned, it had been announced before. Um, before the fire happened. Yeah, it really interesting business has this kind of strange advantage in, in South Korea and that it, because it's so dense, basically, you know, pretty much half the population lives in a very small area, which is uh, the, cap, uh, the capital. So they are, I think, within seven miles of 90% of the population and are able to deliver things from, if you order before midnight, it's delivered to you by 7 a.m. the next day, uh, which really aligns with this kind of hyper workaholic nature of, of the South Korean country. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on it. I think it's a really interesting business. And I think there's an awful lot of noise surrounding people not liking it right now. But from my experience, people tend to follow the path of least resistance and, and they seem to have the infrastructure in place for that. So we'll see if that translates into positive or negative earnings going forward. Absolutely. Thanks for that. So that's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us as always on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or just simply email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating on whatever platform you listen to us on. From the three of us here today, thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you all next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.